death. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are plotting to kill him. Judas decides to betray him. And in the middle of all that wickedness and treachery, Mary anoints him with oil, this beautiful act of devotion. And Jesus says, this is, she's anointing me for burial. So you have all three of these things are pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to die, and there's not really anything that can be done about it. That's the direction uh, that all of this is headed. Uh, Today and next week, we're going to look at what happens on Thursday. So this is Thursday of the last week of his life, and a, a lot of stuff goes on. Today we're going to look at the, the Last Supper. It's, what, it's called the, it's the upper room. It's what happens in the upper room. Jesus has this last meal with his disciples. And then from there he's betrayed and he's arrested. We'll look at that stuff next week. So all of this is happening on Passover. Passover is the day where the Jews celebrate the Israelites being delivered from Egyptian bondage. You can read about that in Exodus 12. And Passover kicks off this, it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a week of celebration. So all of these pilgrims are in Jerusalem. Anywhere from 50,000 to 250,000 extra people are in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and then this festival of unleavened bread. So that's the setting for the stuff we're going to look at starting in verse 17. On the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So again, this is a huge deal. The Kind of the rules are you have to eat the Passover in, within the walls of Jerusalem, and you have to eat it between sunset and midnight. So there are some constraints there. You're in a city that has somewhere between 50,000 and 250,000 extra people, and all of them have to do the same thing. So Jesus has 12 disciples, so he needs a room big enough for 13 folks to have this meal at the same time everybody else is trying to have the meal. And the the assumption that I make, and if you read particularly Mark's version, I think you'll see it, is that Jesus makes some plans ahead of time. He tells the disciples in Mark, he says, look for a guy carrying a jug of water. Men didn't carry jugs. Men carried skins. And so it looks like it's a, a secret signal. This guy, he, he's friendly to Jesus, and he said, hey, you, you and your guys can celebrate this meal at my house. And so when they see the man with the jug, they go to him, and he leads them to the upper room. Jesus in Luke says, I'm, I, I earnestly desire or I eagerly desire to celebrate this meal with y'all. It was very important to him that he have this last meal with the disciples before he's betrayed and arrested. And as we get into it, you'll see why it was so important for him. So he, he didn't want to be interrupted by crowds, and he didn't want to be arrested yet. So he, had, he, he arranged all of this kind of secretive action in order so he could to celebrate this meal with his disciples. So evening comes, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to, one, to him one after the another, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. So again, you have this very important meal. And then regardless of the things Jesus is about to do, it's just an important meal. It's it's Christmas for us. It's this, this high, holy day. Everything is freighted with symbolism and meaning. And in the midst of this, time, Jesus says, one of you, one of my hand-picked 12, one of my closest friends, one of you who's lived with me for the past three years, you're going to betray me. This is a picture, this is how Leonardo da Vinci kind of depicted 
the Last Supper. In that, that, that's always been difficult for me. That's the picture I've had. And I've been trying to figure out, in that setting, how does everybody not know who he's talking to? When Judas says, is it me, how do they all not hear him? And then gang tackle him or something to keep him from doing what he's going to do. This is actually probably what it looked like. That's much more what would have happened. It said, Jesus says, or Matthew says they're reclining. I have no idea. I was trying to think about, I don't know how you cut your meat when you're eating like that. But that's how they ate. Some yoga position, I guess. So Jesus would have been the guy in the middle on the back part of the U. That would have been him taking the place of the father. So if it was a, if it was a nuclear family, that's where the dad would sit. And this meal, there, was, there were things that you had to say, and there was an order that you had to eat the food. And it was, there was a script, and the dad, the head of the house, would have run all of that. So Jesus takes that role. We know from John's gospel, on one side of him is John. He calls himself the beloved disciple, which I don't know what that says about his ego, but that's what he calls himself. And we know, because when, he, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, when he says someone who dips their bread in the bowl with me, they all would have done that. They all ate, it's family style. The food would have been in the middle, and they all would have eaten out of the same dishes. So that doesn't narrow it down at all. And so what, in John, Peter says, ask him who, it's gonna, who did it. Ask him who's going to betray him. And in John, it says, John, or the beloved disciple, leans up against Jesus. So he's close enough to lean up against him. So he's on one of the two sides of him. And then Jesus says, it's the guy who I'm about to give this bread to. He gives the bread to Judas. And according to John, that's when Satan enters Judas's heart. But that's a private conversation. All of you have been in dinner parties or eaten in groups that are big enough that you can have a one-on-one without anybody else knowing. So there's no indication that any of the other disciples know who actually is going to betray Jesus. And so I think this conversation between him and Judas is private as well. So where does that put Judas? Think about that. The guy who he knows is about to betray him. He lets sit right next to him. I don't think it's a friend's close, enemy's closer type of deal. I think what he's saying, I think he's giving him a chance. I think there's two things going on here. One is he wants the disciples to know that he knows he's about to be betrayed. That's a, this treacherous act. He doesn't want them to think that somehow what Judas is doing is, is undermining or thwarting the will of God. He wants to, hey, th- I know. I know I'm about to be betrayed. It actually fulfills Psalm 41.9 that says someone who eats with me will lift up their heel against me. I, I know that all of this is going to happen. So y'all don't need to think that somehow this betrayal derailed what God wanted to do. So I think that's what he's doing for the 12. And I think specifically for Judas, he's saying, you got another shot. It's not, it's not a done deal yet. I'm, keep, I'm giving you another chance to not do I wonder why Judas even asked, just to see if he knew. And when Jesus said, yeah, it's you, like what that exchange and what's going on there. It's, it's this incredible extension and expression of grace that even the one who he knows is about to betray him. He puts him in a seat of honor right next to him, keeps him close, gives him a chance to make a different decision. We know that's not what happens, but Jesus gives him the opportunity. Verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it, offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. 
when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is the Passover meal. We in Christian world call this the Last Supper. It's the last meal Jesus eats together with his disciples. And again, there's meaning in everything that's going on that's been passed down from generation to generation since Exodus 12. You can go back in Exodus 12 and you can see the original um, institution of this Passover meal. So this is the night when God is delivering the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. And he says, you take a lamb. There's three things that they eat in Exodus. He says, you take a lamb and you kill it and you put blood on the doorpost. And so when this angel of death comes through the country, he's going to pass over. That's where the word comes from. He's going to pass over every house where there's blood on the doorpost. If there's no blood on the doorpost, he's coming in and he's killing the firstborn kid and he's killing the firstborn animal. And you need to eat these bitter herbs to remind you of the bitterness of your slavery. They've been enslaved for 430 years, and God is finally delivering them. So you eat these bitter herbs to remind you of the bitterness of slavery. And this bread that's unleavened, that means it doesn't have yeast, because you're not going to have time for the bread to rise. Because when the, when the Egyptians realize what's going on, they're going to tell you all just to get out of here. And so you eat this unleavened bread to remind you of how rapidly and how quickly you had to leave. And if you read Exodus 12, that's exactly what happens. The Egyptians obviously start flipping out when they realize their kids and their animals are dying. And they say to the, to the Jews, they say to the Israelites, Y'all got, you have to leave now. And what Moses tells the Israelites is, here's how you need, you need to eat with your shoes on, with your shirt tucked in, with your belt. You've got to be ready to move because it, it's going to happen quickly. And all of that comes to pass in Exodus 12. So every year during Passover, they would walk through those things. And then they added this other stewed fruit. Now, just side note, any food that you're eating that's to remind you of making bricks out of clay, probably not something that I, I'm out on that. And I can say it's not in the Bible. And there's a reason it's not in the Bible, because God wouldn't make anyone eat stewed fruit. So they added that later. And they add these four cups of wine, and that's what's important for us. Fruit's not important, the wine's important. They add these four cups of wine, and each cup is tied to a phrase from Exodus 6, 6 and 7. If you go back and look at Exodus 6, 6 and 7, it's before anything, before plagues, before Pharaoh, before anything happens, God says to Moses, this is what I'm going to do for you. And each, each cup is tied to one of those phrases. If we can see that, the first one, I'm going to bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And the second one, I will free you from being slaves to them. The third one, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Fourth one, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. We know from Luke's version of the Last Supper, it was that third cup. It was when Jesus had that third cup in his hand that he said, this is the blood of my covenant. During the I will redeem you. And you see the significance of that. So what Jesus has done is take this Passover meal that's, that's meant this same set of things for hundreds and hundreds of years, and he's given new meaning to it. He says, this bread, it doesn't remind you anymore of how quickly you have to leave. It's my body, which is given for you. In this cup, God will redeem you. Let me tell you how he's going to do that. In the past, the way you were redeemed, the way your ancestors were redeemed was by killing a lamb and putting his blood on the doorpost, and the angel of death passed over. I will redeem you. This is the blood of a new covenant which is given for the forgiveness of your sins by applying his blood to your heart, the wrath of God passes over you and you can be forgiven. What I want us to see as we close, a couple of things about this new covenant. We could spend the rest of the day talking about it. We don't have time. I'm just going to give you a couple of things 
to hold on to. This idea of Jesus instituting a new covenant doesn't mean much to us. It is revolutionary for these guys. That's why Jesus said, I earnestly desire, I eagerly desire to have this meal with you. That's why he went through all of these secret preparations to make sure nobody interrupted them. They needed to get this. This is the culmination of everything he's been doing for three years. It all comes down to those four verses. This is my body. This is my blood. This is a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 will give you a, a, a taste of what this new covenant is about. It's explained in greater detail throughout the New Testament, but here's a good summary. The time is coming when I will make a new covenant. There's that idea with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So there he's saying it's not going to be like the old one, the one that we were just talking. It's not going to be like that one. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds. I want you to listen to the content. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So what I want you to grab onto is two pieces of that. The forgiveness part, and then this idea of taking what's external and making it internal. There's more to the new covenant than that, but those are two major components, two key elements. This idea of forgiveness we just mentioned. In Exodus, what forgiveness looked like, this angel of death passing over, was because of the blood of lambs that had been slaughtered. For us, that's why we call him the Lamb of God, because he's this Passover lamb, and his blood applied to our hearts means the wrath of God that we, right, that we rightly deserve because of our own sinful acts passes over us, and we don't have to pay the penalty for that. This is Hebrews. If you want to read more about the Old and New Covenant, read Hebrews. That's what the whole book is about. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify or make holy them so that they are outwardly clean. So you get that? All the old covenant, it, all that blood makes you outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins, committed under the first covenant. You see the distinction there. This idea of taking what's external and pressing it in and making it internal. The basis of that being the forgiveness of our sins. The reason we're forgiven is not just because God wants to declare us not guilty. That's wonderful. That's a negative. That's taking away a punishment or a judgment that we righteously deserve. You saw there in Hebrews, it's so that we can serve the living God. There's a positive and a negative. For me, the idea, the, the legal picture is, is 100% accurate. God declares us not guilty. For me, a much more helpful way of viewing forgiveness is relationally. All of you have been in relationship with someone and there's some funkiness that's gotten in the way. Something's been said or done or not said or not done and it creates this tension between you. Sin is like that times a billion. It creates this funkiness. It's a wall between us and God. And forgiveness is the removal of that. It's dealing with that break in relationship, the point of which is to reestablish relationship. It's not, just to, it's not just to remove the guilt. It's to make it possible for us to relate to him in a, in, a, in a full and free way. 
So forgiveness, it's, it's not the end. It's the first step. It's the doorway into relationship with God. It's the only doorway in. People say, why is Christianity exclusive? How come Jesus is the only way? Because he's the only one that's dealt with the problem. If someone else could deal with the problem of sin, then there'd be more ways. But nobody else can. He's the only unblemished sacrifice. He's the only one who gave himself to pay the penalty for us. If somebody else did that, if somebody else could live a perfect life and would willingly give themselves to pay the penalty for our sins, then we could talk about there being another way to the Father. But because nobody else can or has, he's the only way. It's not being exclusive for the sake of keeping people out of the club. It's being exclusive because he's the only one that can carry the weight. He's the only one that could actually accomplish. He's the only one that could actually pay that penalty. And again, the point is not just for, to declare us not guilty. It's so that we can serve him, so we can be in relationship with him. You can see, um, this is corny, sin is cotton ball in your ears. I'm trying to talk to her, and she has cotton in her ears. So I pull the cotton out, which is great for her. But the point of me pulling it out is so we can talk now. It's so she can hear me. That's, that's sin. It's, it's removing the obstacle that keeps us from relating. You get that. The second piece is this idea that the covenant um, is, is internalized. So everything that's external, God is pressing into us. It's the difference between an owner's manual and a gas pump. An owner's manual tells you how to, how to work a car. Here's what all the buttons mean, and here's how you troubleshoot it, and here's how you change the oil, and that you can read an owner's manual and you'll know how to run a 2001 Camry Solera. You'll know that if you read that book. But it doesn't make the car go. You got to put gas in the tank. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new. The old covenant is an owner's manual. If you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through Malachi, it's an owner's manual. Here's how it's God saying, here's how I want you to live. And most of it is him saying, you're not, you're not, you're not doing it. If you think of like the high water mark in the Old Testament is David. Awesome, except for the adultery and the murder piece. But other than that, he did all. You can't, I can't, we can't. It's not there for us. The owner's manual, it's not enough. And so what God says through Jeremiah is we're not going to do that anymore. It doesn't work. You guys, I've been a husband to you and you've been unfaithful to me. And so here, we're going to do something different. Instead of me giving you an owner's manual and you trying to follow it, let's just, let me put some gas in the tank. That's new covenant reality. How does he do that? By his spirit. The father who sends the son to forgive you of your sins sends his spirit to enable you to live the life that he wants you to live. You need both pieces. You need the forgiveness of your sins given to you through Jesus, and you need the empowerment to live a righteous life given to you through the Holy Spirit. For us, kind of what that looks like is a, is a conscious and intentional and a regular decision to say, I need to be filled. Just like you've got to fill up your car gas tank every week, or if you've got an electric, you've still got to plug the thing in. There's this recognition that it's not going to run forever on its own. It has to be refueled. And that's crass to kind of equate the Spirit of God to gasoline, but there's a picture there for us. Just like I have to constantly refuel my car, I constantly need to be refueled. Otherwise, what happens to me is I wind up living under an old covenant mentality. Hebrews 8 says the old covenant is obsolete and passing away. When he called this one new, which is what we're living under, what he's saying about the old is it's going away. It's obsolete. 
We don't need to function that way anymore. But if I'm not consciously and intentionally saying, fill me with your spirit on a regular basis, if I'm not going to the pump regularly, my default is I'm going to wind up living an owner's manual lifestyle. That's just the way people are, all of us. That's what we default to. All of us default to living in our flesh, which is tell me the rules and I'll make them happen. Just tell me what to do and I'll follow. That's, where, that's, that's the default for everyone unless we're intentionally saying I'm going to live under this new covenant. So this new covenant is new, this idea of forgiveness and internalizing what has been external. And it's a covenant. It's not a contract. And those aren't the same things. A contract is a, a transactional legal arrangement. I wouldn't even call it a relationship necessarily. We had some guys do some work up the street. They're contractors. We contracted with them. You put the wall here and paint it this color and put in a toilet here and then we'll pay you. If you don't do those things, then we won't pay you. It's a contract. Covenant is not the same. What a contract does is it leads to scorecard type thinking. So this is mine. You can, and it's between me and God. So if I'm in a contract with him, then I begin to think, of, I start judging my behavior. And so the basis of my, my performance becomes the basis of my behavior. My performance becomes the basis of my relationship with him. Do y'all not like some of mine? So if you look at that, I'm up four for the week. I've, I'm plus three, God's minus one, I'm up four, so he owes me. That's, nobody thinks that way consciously. Lots of us live that way. We're keeping track with God. Here are the good things that I've done. And so if I've done good things, then God owes me. If I'm in the red, if I'm not doing well, then I can't expect anything from God but judgment and punishment. Again, then my behavior becomes the basis for our relationship. My performance becomes the basis for our relationship. And because it's a contract, if God doesn't hold up his end, then guess what? I'm out. I'm going to go find somebody who will. And for many of us, we never think that. What we think is if we don't hold up our end, then he's kicking us out. And what is that, a day, a week? If, I, if, I'm, not, if I'm in the red, whatever that looks like for you, then my assumption is God's, he's not going to hear me pray. He's not going to move in my life. All I'm going to get are, you know, rats and those types of things in my life, plagues. It's a scorecard mentality. If you keep score in your primary relationships, you probably keep score with God. If you're married, if you keep score with your spouse, then you probably do the same thing with God. It's, an, it's, a, it's a mindset. And normally, however you relate this way, that's going to be how you relate this way as well. So ask yourself, do you have a scorecard understanding of your relationship with God? It might not be, again, it might not be that crass, but do you tend to relate to him based on your performance? Covenant is different. Jesus didn't make a new contract. He made a new covenant. Covenant, the best picture we have, um, ideally and theoretically, is a marriage. If you've ever been to a wedding, people don't, they don't say, I'm going to have and hold and honor you and cherish you from, in sickness and in health and for better or for worse, as long as you cook good meals. And we don't do that. We don't, it's not an, it's, it's, it, I'm saying this is what I'm going to do for you. This is how I'm going to treat you. There's no chance for her to, there's no then. It's not an if-then relationship. It's a here's my commitment until I die or you die. It's a covenant. 
contract is transactional. It's based on performance. And if one party doesn't honor their end, then the thing can be made void. A covenant is different. Read the Old Testament. God repeatedly saying, this is what I'm doing for you. This is who I am. This is my commitment to you. This is my commitment to you. And then the Israelite, he says, I've been faithful to you as a husband. At some point, a covenant can be broken, and it's devastating. But it's not a contract where the first time somebody doesn't hold up their end, you're out. A covenant is based on my commitment to her. A contract is based on her behavior to me. Two different ways of functioning. So with God, a contract is based on my behavior towards him. A covenant is based on his commitment to me. Completely different way to live life. There's freedom in a covenant. I can mess up. I can be in the red with God for a day or a week or a month or a year. I can be in the red because he's not relating to me based on my performance for him. He's relating to me based on his commitment to me. Read the New Testament. That's, that's what he's spelling out. This is my commitment to you. This is what it looks like for you to be adopted into my family. This is what it looks like for you to be in a relationship with me. There's freedom there. There's security there. It takes all the pressure off of every little decision. You have to worry about whether you missed it or not. You have to worry about whether you blew it or not or whether you slept in or not. Or Those types of things become much less. There's less weight on them because you're not keeping score. God's, God's activity in your life is based on his disposition towards you, not based on your performance for him. And then out of that relationship comes your performance. It's not the basis of your relationship, it's the fruit of it. Because I'm in this covenantal relationship with Misty, that affects the choices that I make. And because I'm in this covenantal relationship with God, that affects the way I live. The way I live doesn't determine, it's not the basis of that relationship, it's the fruit or the result of it. Again, it's a, it's a completely different way of viewing your relationship with the Lord. It, there's freedom there. For many of us, even though we'd say, hey, I made a decision when I was 12 years old, and I went down and I prayed and asked Jesus into my heart, all of that's wonderful. My question for you is not, are you a Christian or not? It's, are you living under the new covenant or the old covenant? Are you, a new, are, you li, are you relating to God from this perspective that says forgiveness is the basis of my relationship with him? I recognize I can't, I can't earn my way out of what I've done. God didn't forgive me because I'm cute. He didn't forgive me because I'm smart. He didn't forgive me because the stuff that I did isn't as bad as somebody else. He forgave me because he loved me and because he chose to send his son. And I'm forgiven because I've said, yes, I need, I need that. I need him to pay the price for me because I can't pay it on my own. Are you relating to him based on this fact that what he wants to do is take everything that's external and press it into your heart? So for me, that looks like saying regularly, God, I need you to fill me with your spirit. Otherwise, I'm going to live in my flesh, and that's a train wreck waiting to happen. It's ugly when I do that. I, I recognize I can't live the life that you want me to live without your spirit active in me. It's not some mystical experience. It's a, for me, it's cold, hard facts can't do it otherwise the owner's manual thing doesn't work there's again read the old testament there's thousands of years millions of people who will testify owner's manual doesn't work we need the gas pump filling us regularly recognizing that this this relationship i've been invited into is a covenant not a contract my behavior is important but it's not primary 
his commitment to me, his disposition to me is primary. That's the basis of all of this. And my behavior flows from and comes out of that relationship. It doesn't determine it. Are you living living in that new covenant reality? Again, for me, if I'm not intentionally doing that, default, and I think it's the default of human nature, is to live under the old covenant. Is to say, give me the rules and I'm going to follow them because I'm smart enough or strong enough or good enough or what. I can, I can make this happen on my own. Most of our relationships are contractual. Side note, you, can, you already know this. The reason marriages are devastated in our society is we've taken a covenant and made it a contract. It's easier to divorce my wife than to break my lease. What we've done is we've said, rather than this is, this is my commitment to you no matter what, I've said, well, if, as long as this thing continues to work out and you meet my needs and I think you're great, then we're in. And if one of us decides at some point it's not working out so well, then we'll just, it's just a sheet of paper anyway. It's a contract like anything else. Trade in my car, I'll trade in my spouse. It's not the way we are here. It's the way we are here. Do you have that with God? Do you have that same covenantal or do you have that contractual understanding where he's going to cut you off? He's going to write you off. Or is it the other way? He hasn't done something. He hasn't lived up to his end of the bargain for you. God, I did all of these things, and all I asked was this one thing. Have you ever heard that from somebody? All I wanted was for God to do this one thing, and he didn't. And so I'm done. It's not a covenant. It's a contract. He doesn't enter into contracts with us. He invites us into this covenantal relationship where he adopts us in as sons and daughters, so much better than if he bases things in our performance. We're going to take communion here in a minute, and I want you to see it as this invitation into a new covenant with God. I want you to see it as his, this bread that you're going to break off and dip in this juice. That's, that's, it's, it's remembering what he did during this last supper. That juice represents his blood that was poured out so your sins could be forgiven. You don't have to earn them. You don't have to try to erase them. All you have to do is say, God, I need, I need your mercy in this place. I trust the blood of Jesus that he ransomed me from the sin, from my own, the, the punishment that I'm due for the sins that I've committed. His body given for you. Where he's saying, here, come into this covenantal relationship. It's not based on your performance. It's based on my disposition for you. Let's pray. God, I pray where I thank you that you make covenants and that you keep them. I thank you that you don't do contracts or we would all, we'd all be up a creek. And so, God, for any here today who would say, I'm not certain. Maybe they've made a decision to follow you. Maybe they haven't. But they would say, I don't live my life with God under the realities of this new covenant. I pray, God, that you would draw us in today. You would show us the places where we need to repent and you would draw us in. God, I pray for any here today who've been in relationship, covenantal relationships, and those covenant that it's been broken. And God, that's still a wound for them. I pray that as they take communion, that they would receive your grace and your healing into that place of their life. If they still need to receive forgiveness into that area for whatever reason, I pray, God, that as they come forward, they would receive that as well. God, I pray for those of us who tend to be owner's manual type Christians that you would remind us, that you would urge us towards your spirit, towards life in the spirit. God, we would each know what does it look like for us 
to be filled on a regular basis. And God, you bring conviction when our tank is empty and we're trying to do things on our own. We want to take advantage of all of the resources that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're helping with communion, if you come forward, that'd be great. Uh, We do have a gluten-free station over here. If that's something that you need, you can slip over there. We'll also have ministry teams in the corner. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on, anything I shared that stirred something. Uh, I had this thought. It's a bit of a shift, but I thought it might be important. Um, 1 John 3.8, John says that the Son of Man, Jesus, came to destroy the works of the devil. So without a lot of packaging on that, I would just say, if you've entered into this new covenant with Jesus, that's part of his commitment to you, is to destroy the works of the devil. So if you look at your mind, if you look at your heart, if you look at your life, would you say, yeah, the devil's, I'm not saying that you're demonized, I'm saying the devil's at work trying to steal and kill and destroy, where do you see him at work in those places of your life? Jesus came to destroy those, and we want to stand with you and pray that that would happen. It may be in a relationship where you see the devil is at work undermining a relationship or maybe something in our community that you look at and say that's that's just wicked that's the work of the devil we want to pray for jesus to destroy those things so again without a whole lot of window dressing if that's something that stirs you we'd love to pray with you about that as well so y'all can stand come forward for communion a row at a time uh stop off for ministry and bo will dismiss us when we're done